Open up to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9 today. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. How much of our life is changed by the gospel? How much of our life is changed by the gospel? Now, I hope your answer is everything. That's the biblical answer. I hope that's your answer. But I'm wondering if we really look at our lives, and we're really honest with ourselves, would we be able to say that? I want to read for you a news article, and I use that term loosely. Uh, it's actually from a satire website. It's a Christian satire website. I'll plug them because I think they're awesome. It's called BabylonBee.com. Go home, check it out. It's hilarious. But it's also very challenging. Their articles kind of strike a nerve. How many of you have heard of this? Anybody? It's, it's new, like within the past six or eight months, I think. I think, yeah. <laughs> my family, my kids are constantly making fun of me. Like, you saw that on Babylon B, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did. I want to read to you one of their articles. Again, this is satire. So it's made to look like news, but it's not actually true, but it makes a really interesting point, okay? That's my definition of it, at least. So the headline is, college student says, I'm finally ready to completely and totally surrender a small fraction of my life to God. The article says, and it's written from this college student, supposedly, it finally happened. I knew, I always knew it would. After years of trying to do this whole thing called life in my own strength, I got a heavenly dose of reality from my creator. God brought me to a breaking point. He brought me to a crossroads in my life. He made me realize I can't do this on my own. I'm ready to let go of the illusion of control. I'm finally ready to completely and totally surrender a small fraction of my life to God. I write this today as a new woman. Woman, I feel like a great weight has been lifted off my shoulders. The emotions I felt over the last 48 hours are indescribably beautiful. After at long last, I listen to the voices screaming within my spirit and loosen my stubborn grip on a minuscule portion of my life, offering it up to God as a pleasing sacrifice. I'll never look back. I'll never be the same. I'm a new woman. That much I know. I reached the end of my rope and gave it all to God. I laid my life before my Savior and promised him that while I continue to run the bulk of my life as though he didn't exist, I'm dedicating this miniature fragment to him with reckless abandon forever. I'm filled with optimism and hope as I look forward to for the rest of my life, consecrating a minute piece of my life to Jesus while keeping the vast majority of it to myself completely separated from him, doing with it whatever I please. This is it. No looking back. This tiny piece of my life belongs to you, Jesus. I can't wait to see how this extraordinary adventure unfolds. It's funny, right? Maybe it's just me. I think that's hilarious. But it stings, too. I think that's what good satire does. Because I read that, and while I'm laughing at this fictional writer in the fictional situation, then I look at my own life and I say, I kind of do that too. And I'm guessing you do as well. I think the early Christians struggled with it as well. Okay, we've given our life to Jesus. Everything has changed. Now what? What about the most basic of relationships in our lives? What about the day-to-day -day activities that we're involved in? How are those influenced? We looked last week at chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. as kind of an introduction. 
And in those verses, introducing these relation, relationships that we're looking at now, Paul talks about careful, God-focused living. He says, now since all of this is true, everything he's talked about in Ephesians, about God's great plan and salvation through grace, through faith, and the belonging in the church and these new relationships we have, because all this is true, we must live carefully. We must keep our eyes on Christ because it's easy to get distracted. And then he moved in verse 22 through the end of chapter 5, he talked about relationships between husbands and wives. And we talked about that last week. And now he's going to look at children and parents and then slaves and masters. I know that one kind of, we go, huh? Wait a minute, what? We're going to talk about that. What's important to realize is that these three relationships, husbands, wives, parents, children, or fathers, children, slaves and masters, these were the backbone of the Roman society. Paul wasn't the only one that wrote about these things. We can find writings by non-Christian authors dealing with these same three core relationships. Because in the Roman Empire, they saw these as the most basic relationships that everybody was involved in. And if they didn't get this right, the whole of their society would fall apart. So they had very strong opinions on how these things worked. And the fact that Paul deals with these means that he truly believes the gospel impacts our most basic relationships. There's not this disconnect between our holy Christian life and then our secular rest of our life. I think sometimes it's easy in this day and age to live in a way that I go to church and and I worship and I pray and I get involved in Bible study and then maybe I go home and, and I give God an hour every morning of devotional and prayer half hour, at least a minute or two of devotional and prayer, and, and that's my holy Christian time, and then I go to work. Or, or then I go do whatever I have to do throughout the day. And we kind of leave God behind. The very fact that Paul deals with these things is a challenge to me that he's saying, don't do that. Everything about Christ influences everything about our lives. So we're going to look at these two sets of relationships, children and parents, and then slaves and masters. Trust me, there are things that apply to all of us. Let me read this for us. Let's look at verses 1 through 4, children and parents. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Uh, If you really don't have a Bible, happy Father's Day, take ours. Just take it home, make sure you read it. You don't even have to be a father. Verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it will it may go well with you, that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I want to look a little bit at the obligation of children to parents in the Roman culture. Because it's very easy for us today to take our understanding of these relationships, children, parents, uh, slavery, we'll talk about that in a second, or even employees and employers, and just import them, put them right into the biblical text. And we jump in, we read a passage, we say, what does this mean for me? That's not a bad way to study scripture. But sometimes we have to understand that what this means for me is not necessarily what it meant to them. So let me help you with a little bit of background. In the Roman culture, the father had legal authority over his children as long as the father was alive. So no matter how old you were, 
you were answerable to your father in all legal matters. And he had complete authority over you as long as he was alive. Didn't matter if you were married, how old you were, how young you were. He had authority over you. So the concept of the authority of the father was a lot greater, I would say, than it is today. Furthermore, they looked at the household, specifically the father and child relationship, as a model or a microcosm of Roman society as a whole. So if you couldn't order your own household or you as a child couldn't obey your earthly father, your father, then you were not just disobeying your dad, you were kind of rebelling against all of Roman culture. So it was a much bigger deal. Jewish culture had a similar idea. They saw that the relationships within the home was a picture of the relationships between God and us. Paul quotes right out of the Ten Commandments. He quotes the Fifth Commandment from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. The child's relationship to the father was a demonstration, an expression of their relationship to God. To disobey one's father was to disobey God. So here's the way they viewed this child and parent, specifically the child and father relationship. But now imagine they've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel says you've been adopted by your heavenly father. You're no longer who you were. You're dead to that person. You're now alive in Jesus Christ. This changes everything. We've talked about that throughout the book of Ephesians, the radical nature of the gospel. Does this mean you get to go home and say to your dad, hey, I don't need to listen to you anymore because I got Jesus? Kids, the answer is no, just in case you're wondering. Parents, does it mean you get to look at your kids and go, "Ah, do whatever you want. You belong to God. I belong to God. Go for it. The answer is no. So in a sense, Paul doesn't change the relationships, but what he does do is profound. He changes how we view them. He changes the motivation behind them because they are in the Lord. So let's look at what he says. He starts with the children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first greatest the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. There's not a whole lot ground shaking here in the way Paul is addressing the parents, except for one thing. He emphasizes again that children, your relationship with your parents is an act of worship to God. So when you struggle with your parents, and and we all do, I know my kids do with me. I get it. I've been there. But to say... I'm going to love my dad. I'm going to love my mom as an act of worship to God. That changes everything, doesn't it? Does it make the parent always right? My kids, yes, it does. Everybody else, no. (laughs) Okay, it doesn't. No, we are imperfect representatives. Fathers, you might be a great dad. You're no Jesus Christ. But to train our kids and for kids to see that in their relationship with their father, they are actually worshiping God. Now again, this wasn't all that earth shattering. Where it becomes earth shattering is verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I talked about these relationships being mentioned in Roman culture, in other literature. In that literature, 
the emphasis is always on the one under authority. The one in authority could practically do whatever they wanted because they had authority. Whatever they had to do to get the one under their authority to do what they were supposed to do, it was like free game. Paul changes that. And he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. To exasperate means to push to anger, to put someone in a situation that they are so fed up, so exhausted that rage just wells up within them. Now, does this mean, dads, if your kids get mad at you, you must be doing something wrong? I'm pretty sure and I surely hope that the answer to that is no. Otherwise, I'm a complete and utter failure as a father. But it does mean that dads, you can't just do what you do with no regard for your children. You can't just treat them however you want with no regard for their relationship with Christ. And what Paul is doing is applying some of the basic foundational elements that he's introduced already. Look at chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Because Paul has had a lot to say about anger, specifically sinful anger. Chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Skip down to verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, we look at those things and we say, oh, of course, right, Paul. Okay, I'm a Christian. This is how I am to live. Now he takes it a step farther and he says, now bring this into your relationships. Dads, are you driving your kids to sinful anger? Are you driving them to Jesus Christ? It's a big difference. What's the motivation? See, the Roman father could do whatever he wanted to do in order to get his kids to obey. Paul says to the Christian father, that's not how you are to love your own kids. Yes, the child is under your authority, but ultimately he is under the authority of Christ. Treat him as such. Sinful anger contradicts the Gospels, and fathers are to instruct and discipline their children in a way that points them to Christ. Then he says at the end of verse 4, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I love the picture here. It's literally nourish them, feed them, instruct them, teach them. The emphasis is on the child's relationship with Christ. Point them to Christ and help them to grow in that. Through the gospel of salvation, through Jesus Christ, earthly fathers understand they're part of something so much bigger than just their relationship with their child. They stand in a place of pointing their child to Christ. So children, love and respect your parents as an act of worship to Christ. Can I get an amen from all the parents? Right? Now, parents... Are they going to do this perfectly from the day they're born? No. We have to help them. Not just with us, but in all areas. Parents, love and discipline and teach your children as an act of worship to Christ. You're going to have to know Christ a lot in order to do that. Now let's look at the other relationship that Paul deals with. And I'm using the term employers and employees, and I'll explain why in a second. Let's read the passage, verses 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of hearts, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly 
as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is one of those passages, and there are others, that people will look at, and they will point the finger at us Christians and say, see, your God teaches slavery. How awful are you that you believe in a religion that teaches slavery? Have you ever had anybody talk to you about that? Have you ever wondered that yourself? It's a hard thing to wrestle with. I want to help you with that. One thing is to understand that, again, we can't just import our ideas onto the text. Our picture of slavery is very, very different than the slavery that was going on in the Roman Empire. There's some connections. There were abuses. But let's understand the difference. Modern slavery typically starts when somebody is snatched from their homes, from their environment, against their will, taken somewhere they don't want to be, and they're trapped there. It's a horrific thing. It's often based on their ethnicity or their social status. They're treated as less than human because of who they are, their skin color, their economic status, or their social status. And they're often helpless. They're owned by that slave owner, completely belonging to them, abused by them over and over again. Now, I want you to hear very carefully, that picture of slavery is nowhere ever supported in Scripture. In fact, there are many, many things in Scripture that so clearly condemn that idea of abusing another person in that way. It is a fundamentally unchristian concept. Okay, so if somebody points the finger at you and says, see, you guys believe in slavery, you say, oh, no, not the way you're thinking of it. Let's look at slavery in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, slavery was often, not always, not exclusively, but it was often entered into voluntarily. It was an option. If you got in trouble, you you had so much debt that you couldn't pay it off, you had no way to provide for your family, slavery was an option. What are our options today? Well, you can take out a loan, and then you owe that loan company or you owe that person. And you, in a sense, belong to them, right, until you pay it off. They had a different means. The other thing you can do today that they had no concept of was bankruptcy. Well, we'll just say you're forgiven of that debt. They had to pay it off, and this was a means to do it. It was often an economic deal. Some of the slaves were well-educated, doctors and lawyers. Some of the slaves even had slaves of their own. Again, it was a way in Roman society to deal with things that we deal with differently. There were ways to buy or earn your freedom. There was a way out. You didn't have to be a slave forever. The Old Testament law said that slaves had to be released every seven years. God put it in there. You shouldn't own somebody for longer than seven years. They don't belong to you. You can deal with their debt. You can deal with their issues, but let them go. We're not sure if the Jewish people ever abided by that, but God put it into the law. Now, look, I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture of Roman slavery. Don't get me wrong. There were a lot of abuses, just as there are a lot of abuses all over in society, both then and now. But the reason I'm applying this to employers and employees is because I think it's the best equivalent to this situation. I'm hoping none of you are struggling today with being a slave 
or how to own your slaves. I, I sincerely hope you don't. If you do, come and talk to me and I'll call the police. Okay? <laughs> but looking at it in terms of I work for somebody for a purpose or I manage other people to get a job done, there are principles that cross the lines between the ancient culture and today. Now again, think of the gospel coming into this situation. The gospel says you're free. You're owned by God. He has paid all of your debt spiritually. You are absolutely free. Paul has emphasized that over and over and over again. So what's the Roman slave who becomes a Christian to do? Should he say, woohoo, I'm out of here. Paul says, look, you do have an obligation. So let's look at how he deals with them. He starts with the slaves. And he says, you need to obey as you would obey Christ. If you're here today and you're an employee, I want you to listen very carefully. How would your view of your work change if you said every single day, I am serving Jesus Christ? Yes, I'm listening to my boss. Yes, I'm doing my work. Yes, I'm working well with the people around me. Yes, I'm doing good for the good of the company. But ultimately, I'm doing all of that because Jesus Christ is my boss. He's my Lord. Could you put up with a boss that wasn't great if you said, I'm worshiping Christ through my relationship with this person? How would that change? He says there's two motivations we should not have to motivate our work. He talks about people-pleasing. In verse 6, he says, Obey them not only to win their favor. There's the people-pleasing. How often at work do we, could we get caught in this situation of, well, I'll just do what I have to do to keep my boss happy. Keeps him off my back. Keeps her off my back. Just get it done. I don't have to deal with it. Or if I keep them happy, I can move up. So I'm going to please them. I'm going to make the people around me happy. Paul says, no, you're not seeking to win their favor. Favor, You're working for God. We'll look for his favor. The other motivation that we're not to have is a, a term that Paul really coins. It's the phrase, I service. I service. The NIV says, when their eye is on you. I service. I want you to remember that. I like this. Am I working for eye service? Do you know what eye service is? It's pretty obvious. The boss is looking. Working away. Yeah, boss, doing a good job. Boss turns away. Eh, solitaire, Minecraft. Solitaire is a little dated. Got to keep it relevant. It's this idea, I'll do what I have to do because somebody's watching me. But if they're not watching me, I can do whatever I want to do. My children and I, no offense kids, we have this conversation constantly. Are you just obeying when I'm watching you? Or what about when I turn my back? Parents, you, you with me on this one? But do we do that at work, too? Start slacking off. See, if you're serving the Lord in your work, guess who's always watching you? Your boss. The one you're seeking to please is always watching you. So serve him wholeheartedly. Things that should motivate our work. We are serving Christ. At the end of verse 6, end of verse 7, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serving wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Now think about this for a second. The slave, and I gave the reasons why you could go into slavery, but let's admit it, just like some jobs, not the ideal situation. All right? Slaves weren't always getting up every day, woohoo, get to be a slave today. All right? That wasn't their mentality. 
Paul uses this phrase, doing the will of God. If you flip to Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14, I won't read it. But this phrase, the will of God, appears four times in these 14 verses. That's more than any other single chapter of Scripture, and it's more than any other book. Just in those 14 verses, it's more than any other book of Paul's. He uses this concept of the will of God. The will of God is huge in the book of Ephesians. It's laid out for us in chapter 1, the will of God to bring salvation. It's accomplished in the salvation of chapter 2. It's lived out in the church in chapter 2. And then going into verses three or chapters 3 and chapter 4, Paul keeps applying this concept of the will of God. In 5.17, the introduction to this passage we're in now, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And everything that he's doing now in these relationships is explaining the Lord's will in these situations. So catch this. He's saying to some of the lowest people of society, serve well to serve the Lord, because by doing so, you're participating in the eternal plan of God. How would, you work, how would your work change if that was your mentality? I get to go to work today to participate in the eternal plan of God. Now, does that mean that your company is a wonderful Christian company? No. Many of these slaves weren't serving Christian masters. But it means that in their service, they are worshiping God. And that's his eternal plan. What a radical redefinition of work that Paul gives to them and to us today. And then he gives another reason for their motivation, verse 8, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Ultimately, in our work, we're seeking God's favor, not man's, not our boss's. God does not reward the way the world does. When we get to heaven, I think it might be tempting to think we're going to have some sort of a resume well, God, look at the promotion I got on this day. Look at, look at the titles behind my name. Look at all the people that thought I was a great salesperson or great manager. Look at how awesome I was. As if God's going to look at us and go, wow, you're amazing. You go over here and somebody else is going to get there and just be like, oh, I was just a janitor. I, I was just a lowly servant. And Okay, well, you go over here. And that's the way they thought. I think it's still sometimes the way we think if we're not careful. Paul says that's not the way the Lord looks at people at all. He says the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. He doesn't show personality or partiality. Do you know what's going to be on your resume when you get to heaven? There's going to be two things if you're a Christian. Number one, sinner. There you go. Woohoo! Look, God, aren't you amazed at me? I'm a sinner. No. Number two, saved by Jesus Christ. And that's what the Lord is going to look at us. And he's going to say, you're covered by the blood of my son. What if we lived every day as an act of worship with that mentality? The Christian slave, like the modern Christian employee, is first serving Christ, not the company or the boss, but Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he deals with the master's. And if you're here today and you manage employees in any situation, you oversee volunteers, maybe in a ministry or a parachurch organization, listen up. This first phrase that he says is a bombshell in Roman culture. 
And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. That would have made no sense to the Romans. Wait a minute. I get the slaves are to obey. I get that they're supposed to do all these things. Masters, treat your your slaves in any semblance of the same way that the slaves are supposed to treat you? No, no, no. I own them. I get to do whatever I want. Paul says, no, you don't. They belong to Jesus Christ just as you belong to Jesus Christ. Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. The number one way in the Roman culture that they got the slaves to obey was to threaten them constantly with punishment. You don't do this, you're going to get lashes with a whip. You don't do this, this is what's going to happen to you. It was all the time. Masters were supposed to keep their slaves living in fear. That's how you controlled them. And Paul says, no. Employers, bosses, managers, how do you treat the people that work for you? He goes on to say, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. This was ground shaking. To say you relate to God, your father, through Jesus Christ, and so do they. You're made in the image of God. So are they. You don't get to claim anything over them. Your job is to love them like Christ loves them. You need to treat them as if you are worshiping Jesus Christ. Because that's the call to the master and it's the call to the employer. I cannot stress how countercultural this is. And if you're here today and you're going, man, Dave, this doesn't really apply to me whatsoever, I want you to think there are areas in your life it does. These are just examples. The gospel is radically countercultural. Paul is challenging things that they all would have said, yeah, 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 Paul, I get that. Totally get it. I got it. Yeah, heard that since I was a little kid. And Paul's going, no, you haven't at all. You need to be challenged by the gospel in these areas. Maybe for you, it's not your work life. Maybe it's it's not as a parent and a child relationship. But what is it? Where does the gospel challenge those hidden areas of your life, those areas that you're saying, God, this is mine. You don't get it. I'm going to hold this back. God doesn't want just a minuscule portion of our lives. The gospel changes everything. By dealing with these relationships, Paul is saying the gospel changes everything. Everything. He's also clearly saying to the church, Christians, you're a new family. You're a new society. And your rule, the foundation of this society, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That changes everything. There is no sacred or secular. For the Christian, everything is an opportunity for worship. Everything is touched by and infused by the gospel. I hope that you can see that even if these things don't relate to you, you need to look up in every situation of your life. We could go through many different things that might relate to you, but you know, apply the gospel through the way you think about everything in your life. Serve and worship Christ in everything you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, it's amazing that something written to people that lived 2,000 years ago to such a different culture still has profound relevance and application to us today in different ways. And yet, God, we are still people that struggle with compartmentalizing our lives. And we can say on the one hand we receive Christ and we accept Him and we give Him as 
every part of our lives and declare that He's Lord over all areas, but then we hold back these areas for ourselves. And so, Father, I pray this morning on Father's Day for the dads in our midst. May they allow the gospel to define how they raise their kids, how they love their families. I pray for our children, not just in their relationship with dads, but moms as well. May they love their parents as an act of service to the Lord. And may we equip them to do that as a church and as Christian parents and families. I pray for the employees that are here. May they love you enough to go into work as an act of worship. I pray for the bosses and the managers. May they treat the people under their care, their stewardship, as people that are first and foremost accountable to you and people who need Jesus. And God, for all of us, may we allow the gospel to redefine the way we look at and interact with the world in every single area that we view everything as under your authority and an opportunity to bring glory and honor to you. In your name we pray. Amen.